the end of Revelation 19. Um, if this is your first uh, Sunday with us, or if you've missed a couple weeks, uh, you get to jump right in. This is going to be a fun passage. Very. Uh, this might be the most debated passage in the entire Bible. Um, but kind of where, where we are in the book of Revelation is John has talked a lot about uh, the events leading up to the end uh, in the first 16 chapters of Revelation. And uh, from Revelation 16 on, uh, at least what I think is we see four different pictures, uh, kind of a, a painting or a picture, if you will, of what the final judgment, the return of Jesus, and the glory after will happen. We saw that in the seven bowls of God's wrath. We saw it last week where we saw this great, wicked, evil city symbolized by a woman judge and then the bride of Jesus uh, brought to glory. And this week, we're going to see judgment and glory again. We're going to see Jesus come and conquer his enemies and God's people reign with him. But um, I, and I've, I've really tried as we've gone through Revelation to kind of avoid the weeds on when certain events will happen and when they won't. Uh, that's going to be kind of impossible this morning. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is a passage that is at the dead center of the debates on what uh, people call eschatology, which is the theology of the end. So here's what I'm going to do. Just, just for five minutes, I'm going to kind of give you a brief overview of different views on this passage uh, so that when we actually read it and open up, we can, we can focus in on the message and application. But I think it's important just to address this while we're here because denominations divide over what this passage teaches. So uh, here's the thing. Uh, Revelation 20, verses 1 through uh, 3, or 1 through 6, sorry, um, seem to teach that after Jesus conquers his enemies, um, he, Satan will be bound for a thousand years, and the saints will come to life and reign with Jesus on the earth, and then Satan will be released again, and there will be another final battle. Uh, that, if you just take Revelation 20 uh, straightforwardly, uh, that is the conclusion you'll come to. There will be two final battles, one between Christ and the beast, one between Satan and the Father. Um, and that view is called the premillennial view. Uh, many godly Christians hold that, and the primary reason they hold that is because they want to be straightforward and faithful in interpreting the literal words of this passage. Um, other Christians say that there's a problem with that particular view, and the main problem is that Revelation 19 to 20 is not the only passage in the Bible that we have about the end. And almost every other passage that we have in the scriptures about the end pictures one final return of Christ, one final judgment, and then a new age. If you read, uh, I'll just direct you this passage, if you read Mark, I think it's 17, Matthew 23, uh, Luke, I just read this, Luke 20, I think, when Jesus uh, gives his teaching on the end. He talks about all these things in Revelation happening, but then when he returns, it's over. And so um, interpreting this particular passage, which makes it seem like Jesus returns once, there's this in-between stage, and then the new heavens and earth can get a little bit difficult. I think additionally, um, if you take Revelation as a book as a whole, with all of its symbolism, I think it's difficult to take this as a literal thousand years. Um, anyways, that second view that says it's actually a little more complex is called the amillennial view. 
They believe there's not a uh, literal thousand-year reign of Christ uh, on the earth after the final battle, before the second final battle. Um, that's amillennial. So uh, I, I'll just give you my interpretation. I'll let you know there's some strengths and weaknesses to it, and then we'll actually dive into what this passage is all about. Um, so here's my interpretation. I think that this passage is another angle on the return of Jesus and what glory looks like. We've seen lots of angles. We've seen uh, God's wrath poured out justly upon the wicked. We've seen one woman last week judged, this wicked, evil prostitute judged, and one woman, the bride of Christ, brought to her wedding feast. Those are, those are very different pictures of what happens at the end. Uh, next week, we'll see the devil defeated and a new heavens and new earth. Again, another picture. This one uh, is a particular picture. There's a particular angle John wants to give us on the return of Jesus that's going to be helpful to us and uh, be applied to our lives. Uh, that is what I think. There are some connections in this text with other parts of Revelation that help me come to that conclusion. You can ask me about it if you'd like. Uh, my interpretation has some difficulties. I'll just be honest. Uh, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3, when it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years, but after that he must be released for a little while, that is uh, probably the hardest verse for the way I see this passage, um, and I'm not totally sure. But uh, my biggest encouragement to you uh, when it comes to this particular passage, will there be a literal thousand years? Is this symbolic? My encouragement to you, just in general, with a, with a passage like this, is to come to a conclusion, all right? Don't say, oh, it's too hard for me. I'm just going to give up. I don't care, right? Come to a conclusion. God wants you to try. Uh, but then whatever conclusion you come to, hold it loosely. Don't expect every Christian on the earth to see this the way you do. What you have to believe to be a faithful Christian is that Jesus will return. He will have victory, and his people will have glory. That's what you have to believe to be faithful. Other than that, uh, there is a little bit of freedom. Okay. All that being said, wherever you land on the timing of the future, let's just remember that John's point in writing this book was not to give us a systematic theology. He, it was to encourage and strengthen seven persecuted churches who were struggling in the Roman Empire. And in that context, we see very clearly this passage is about the ultimate victory and reign coming to God's people through Jesus. So let's see how one day, if you're a Christian, you will overcome and you will have all the authority and significance you've dreamed of. So let's start at uh, Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. We're going to go all the way to Revelation 20, uh, verse 6. Let's hear the Lord's voice in this passage. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, 
to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and their, or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this picture of Jesus, our conquering king. And I pray that as we, uh, as we just meditate on this passage and open it up and try to understand that you'd, uh, you would just let our hearts come alive with hope. Um, that you really are good, that you really are fighting for us, and you really are bringing us to a future uh, that is glorious to behold. So, so do that in our hearts as we hear this passage. I, I pray just for wisdom and humility before it. pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So maybe one of the most shocking things Jesus ever said was, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. If that is true, in the future... Janitors will rule over their CEOs. ISIS will bow at the feet of the people they beheaded. Presidents will take orders from all the poor people they ignored. The mentally handicapped will reign over the nuclear physicists. Celebrities will be forgotten, and no-name people will be famous forever. And our passage this morning shows us why this is the case. Because for all of those janitors and martyrs and poor people and no-name Christians in the world who remain faithful to Jesus, he will come in glory, conquer their enemies, and set them up as his vice regents and rulers forever. God's people will rule the universe with Christ. And there is some great encouragement for us today, especially if we feel rather embattled or forgotten but there's also a sharp edge to this passage. And if that is, if we want to be among the first in the next life, among those people reigning with Jesus, we've got to be willing to take last place until then. Let's see how. So first, we see Jesus, the warrior king, appear 
defeat his enemies and give victory to his people. Uh, Verses 11 to 16 show us that Christ appears at the end as a conquering king. First, let's just see that this is Jesus. Uh, Notice that just like he's described in chapter 1 and chapter 2, verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Uh, Notice at the end of verse 13, he has John's favorite title for Jesus, the Word of God. That appears often in the Gospel of John. So this is Christ. Uh, This is his final coming, at least in the way I understand this passage. But the point, all this description is, is pointing us to Jesus appearing like a conquering king. Notice the names by which he is called. Uh, Verse 11, the one sitting on a white horse is called faithful and true. He is faithful to all of his promises to his people. When he says to them that if you endure, you will reign with Christ, he means that. He's proving it here. His words are true when he says that judgment is coming, that God's enemies will be defeated. He's true. He keeps his word. Uh, Notice uh, there's all this emphasis on his name. Uh, The end of verse 12, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. In uh, the first century, someone's name was more significant than what mom or dad thought was cute. People's names uh, meant something. It described them. It Uh, God's name in the Bible is the totality of his character. And here, Jesus alone knows his own name. In other words, no one has mastery over him. No one has full knowledge of him. He He is supreme. He's also, in verse 13, he's called. His name is, what should we call it, is the word of God. He's God's message. It's a message of salvation to people who receive him and judgment to those who reject him. Final thing he's called in this passage is verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the ruler of all. He might have come humbly as a man. He might have been rejected, killed under the authorities of this world. But one day the truth will be revealed. So that's his name. Next we see his appearance. First he comes on a white horse. The white horse is the kind of horse a conquering king comes on. Next, we see his eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees through our appearances. His eyes burn with the flame of the Lord. On his head are many diadems. Again, he is the king. Next, we see who comes with him. In verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Just a sidebar really quickly. This is the same way that the bride of Christ in chapter 19, verse 8 is dressed. She has fine linen, white and pure. That's another kind of connection that helps me see this passage as a picture of the end. Anyways, uh, just notice that Jesus is followed by his army, uh, that they are behind him. They're not probably going to do much fighting today. They're just going to watch, as we'll see in a second. Um, Finally, notice what the conquering king does. With him, he has, in verse 15, a sharp sword from his mouth with which to strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. Like the prophesied Messiah, Jesus will once and for all subject the unbelieving nations to himself. Uh, second part of verse 15 says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Uh, Chris taught about four weeks ago on Revelation 14 
where this, there was this image of the final judgment where uh, Jesus was treading on the wine press. And a wine press in ancient times was a giant vat, and you put a bunch of grapes in it. And literally, to get the grape juice out to make wine, you just stomped on the grapes. And it actually would splatter all of your clothes with this grape juice as you stomped. And the last judgment is a picture. That's the picture of Jesus' enemies before him. They are crushed. Um, in fact, his robe is dipped in blood, probably the blood of his enemies. So, uh, in summary of this little first vision, I think the idea here is that Jesus is the conquering king. Throughout the book of Revelation so far, throughout the history of the world, who has Jesus been? He has been the Lamb of God, the most tender, gentle animal you can imagine, sacrificed for sinners, welcoming them to salvation, patient, gentle, drawing people. But at the end, his patience will be over, and he will return as a conquering king. For his people. Notice again, his people are with him. God's not just taking out wrath and judgment on unbelievers. He's delivering his people. The book of Revelation has shown us that at the end, it's not going to look good for the church. The church will be beaten. They will be martyred. They will be killed. And Jesus will come and rescue them. And just notice God has done this uh, throughout history. The book of Exodus, God delivers his people from Egypt all by himself. One time in the book of Kings, again, I just, the, uh, the Bible's so cool. This happens in Isaiah as well. 185,000 Assyrians gather outside of Jerusalem. They're about to take it. And overnight, an angel of the Lord destroys 185,000 people in the army. God's people just stand still and see his salvation. So next part of the passage, most interestingly, we learn, you know, if you just read these first four verses, you might think this is just a description of how cool Jesus is. We actually learn next, this is a picture of the last battle. This is a very interesting picture of the last battle because you'd almost think that, you know, we have over here in the red corner, Jesus, and over here in the blue corner, his adversary, the Antichrist. Uh, but we don't see that, actually. What we get in verse 17 is very strange. We see an angel calling to all of the birds to gather for God's feast. Because they're going to feast on the flesh of everyone opposed to Christ. At the end of verse 21, we see the birds are gorged with their flesh. And you might wonder, why in the world is that here? And I think the idea is very clear. This is not a battle. There might be two armies gathered against each other. But there's no, there's no question on who wins. There's no battle here. There's no, there's no heroes struggling. There's no sacrifice. It's just over in a second. In fact, God's enemies don't even really get described here. You just look at verse 19. All you get is verse 19. You get, all, you get these six verses for Jesus describing every aspect of his appearance. And then you get verse 19. The beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, they gather to make war. That's all you get. No description. Just imagine this. The armies of the earth with whatever technology they have whenever this happens. All gathered, demonic warriors probably involved in that. And they don't, even get a, they don't even get half a verse. And the idea is that in comparison to Jesus, they are absolutely nothing. Verse 20, the conclusion is very quick. The beast is captured, the false prophet. If you're new to class, uh, these two figures, the beast and the false prophet back in Revelation 13, they're gonna be the guys in charge of the earth the Antichrist, the ruler of this evil kingdom, his main servant, the deceivers of the earth. All right, they're captured. 
thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and everybody else is destroyed by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who's sitting on the horse. Jesus' victory is quick and complete. As a sidebar, uh, again, this is a helpful picture to kind of clarify what's going to happen in final judgment. Many of the pictures uh, we've had in Revelation describe God pouring out his judgment on evildoers. And it's tempting to think those poor evildoers who are sitting back and receiving this, what actually happens, as we see from Revelation 19 and 20, is they gather to make war against him. Just remember that. That's, that's where evil heads. The people of the earth one day will actually take up arms and try to defeat and kill Jesus. That's what's going to happen. So just let that clarify kind of what, how we see the final judgment. But again, oh, this passage is all about Jesus' clear, easy, and forever victory. Uh, and whatever your eschatological views are, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, picture... Jesus' victory being extended to the dragon, uh, who John says very clearly in verse 2, this is the devil and Satan, God's enemy, the one who's been tempting and destroying God's people from the beginning. Whether this is an actual thousand-year period that's literally fulfilled uh, later, whether this is a sim- sim- symbolizing Jesus' eternal victory over the devil, notice he defeats all of his enemies. They are all helpless before him. Maybe you're wondering, why is the last battle not really a battle at all? Why is there, you know, that doesn't really jive with how we see battles. This isn't like a war movie, right? Um, and I think, I, think the, I think an idea here that's helpful is that the great battle at this point in history, the great battle has already been won. The battle with all the sacrifice and the tension where the world sat in silence watching, wondering what happened, that already happened. It happened when Christ came as a man, when he went into the desert and as the first man in history, defeated the temptations of the devil. It happened in Gethsemane when he wanted to walk away from God's will and submitted to him. It happened on the cross when Christ poured his life out for sinners. The book of Colossians says that Jesus disarmed the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. So this is the mop-up fight. This is the king who's already won, clearing out that last den of rebels. So let's, uh, let's ask two questions in application, then we'll see the, the thousand-year reign. So first, are you at war with God? Maybe you're angry or grumpy at how God has been treating you. Maybe you're resisting his commandments. Maybe you are trying to establish that you are a good person and do good things. All of those things, even if they're little things, are making war against God, resisting his provision. And we see here, this is where, if, you, if those things continue in your life, you continue to resist Jesus offering himself to you, obedience to him, this is where that heads eventually. John is always after our repentance. He's always after our change. This is where the little wars we have with God end if we will not repent. I think more so, maybe more applicable to people in this room, do you know people who are at war with God? Do you realize that your cashier at Harris Teeter, your cousin, your barista, 
your neighbor, the one who plays that loud music that drives you crazy at night, they are headed here if they don't repent. They are headed to this horrific day when they will make war against God and be utterly destroyed. And don't you know that you were heading here at one point? And then somebody, whether it was your parents or a friend or someone in college, right, they took the risk of ministering to you, right? God saved you, right? But he used people in your life. And if the people in your life are really heading here, how can you not go to them? I'll just say something that might be a little bit too much here, but I understand that adult working life is tiring. I get it. All you want to do on your weekends is and hang with your friends. I feel that. I understand. It's comfortable. It's refreshing. It's good. But if this is true, and there are people all around us heading here, and God has given us and entrusted to us the one message that can rescue and save, then surely, even while we, you know, while we hang out, while we get refreshed, all those things, surely we rearrange our lives and sacrifice some stuff to see people saved. Surely we give ourselves those things. And, and I'll just say, each week in this room at Connect, we talk through opportunities to get outside of our comfort zones and serve people in the name of Jesus. We've got Twin Eggs going on. We've got apartment life going on. We've got the Wild Game Banquet. And, you know, it's, 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 kind, of, it's kind of a joke in, a, in middle school ministry. You announce something fun, 200 kids show up. You announce mowing lawns on Saturday mornings, and two kids show up. And that dynamic is, is, is in most ages and stages of life. Something fun, cool, attractive, everybody's there. Something that requires me to get outside my space, do something uncomfortable, it's sparse. And I think what is helpful is this is motivation. I've been rescued. Somebody was uncomfortable for my sake. I can go and do likewise. So, people at war with God head here. But there's a second thing I just want to ask uh, you to think through. Do you really believe, like David says in 1 Samuel, that the battle is the Lord's? Revelation 19 is just the extension of the way God has always been working in history and the way he's working right now in your life. Again, the Exodus, all through the Old Testament, God's people get in trouble. It's desperate. They cry out to him. He delivers them with a mighty hand. That's happening in your life right now. Are you facing an evildoer? Are you struggling against sin? Are you actually laboring for lost people and you don't see any fruit? The battle is God's. Trust him. You're going to overcome your sin if you keep being faithful. You're going to see people know Jesus if you keep being faithful. The battle's the Lord's. So Jesus will get all the victory on that day. He will come as a conquering king and defeat and destroy his enemies. God's people do not have to bring the kingdom. Jesus does it. But next we see what happens after Jesus wins. After Jesus wins, the saints reign and rule over the earth with him. Jesus conquers so that you, if you know him, if you continue, so that you can reign over the earth. And this is the key to a humble and meek and content life. One day you will reign. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, thrones appear, seated on them 
those to whom the authority to judge was committed. This is almost certainly thrones for God's people to sit upon. Uh, earlier in the book, we've seen the elders, probably the 12 apostles sitting on thrones. Uh, the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that, that God's people are to judge angels. Uh, just today I was reading in uh, Luke, I think 22, where Jesus was talking to his 12 disciples and saying, I will sit you on thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are God's people. Again, uh, in the historical context of this book, who were poor, persecuted, despised, no job offers because of their faith in Jesus, all of those things going on, having the Roman Empire rule over them. And now, the last are first. And they are put on thrones. We see who they are in verse 4. I saw the soul of of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or received its mark on their foreheads or hands. Those are people who've been faithful to Jesus. Uh, faithfulness to Jesus in the end of time will probably require exactly what this passage says. Not worshipping the beast, being killed. In our present day and age, perhaps it might be a little easier than that. But notice, the people who come and reign with Jesus are the ones who stay faithful to him in this life. Notice, uh, and again, I'll just say, I'll just admit this, verse 5 is very difficult in the way I understand this passage. Uh, but verse 6 is very difficult for the way other people understand this passage. So verse 5 says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That seems to indicate this is a real period. But verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. That seems to make it seem like this first resurrection is for every believer. The second death is just uh, what we'll see in a second, uh, being thrown in the lake of fire, being judged eternally. And so, and this pronouncement of blessing, again, is connected to Revelation 19. We saw this last week. Um, Revelation 19.9, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, in my mind, these, these seem connected. It might be a little more difficult. Whatever, wherever you land, though, the main point of this passage is whatever you're doing now, however unnoticed or poor or despised your faith in Jesus has made you, if you continue with him, you will be exalted to be a ruler of the universe. You will actually, literally reign with Christ. He will give you an authority and a place and the giftedness and power to rule with him. And this is even uh, more poignant when we look at the context of Revelation as a whole. Uh, we learn in Revelation 13 that evil almost wins, that the Antichrist, this world ruler will rise, rule the earth, kill God's people. Um, and it says over and over again in that little that part of the book that he'll do so for three and a half years. All these numbers are thrown out. Three and a half years, 42 months, which is three and a half years-ish, and uh, a time, time, and half a time, all describing this short period. So the beast gets to reign for three and a half years, and the saints get to reign for a thousand years. The idea is very clear that the saints get the real thing. They get what authority and fame and power and glory in this life is just a whisper of. And it's even bigger when you zoom out a little bit more and see the whole story of the Bible. What was the first thing that God said to humanity? 
Genesis 1.28 says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. In other words, reign over it, rule over it. You know, normally we associate 128 with the good old call to have babies, right? But the point of this being fruitful and multiplying is to rule the earth. And all of a sudden we, we see here, finally, after millenniums of subjection to earth, of being sick, of not even being able to clean your room, God's people are exalted to a place where they literally rule over the earth. It's a picture of Eden, not just restored, but multiplied. Just step back for a second and see the wonder of what Jesus has done. The gospel is a story that God in Christ through the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus that he saves sinners. What he does is he takes rebels and he forgives them. He doesn't just forgive them. He makes them righteous. He gives them the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't just make them righteous. He makes them sons and daughters, members of his family. But he doesn't just do that. He makes them rulers over the earth. God takes rebels who deserve death through Christ and makes them rulers of the universe with Christ. Just sit back for a second and be blown away by what the gospel means for your future. Be blown away at this transformation of who you really are. I think uh, as we move to application, um, the main point of this passage for those people struggling, for us struggling, is if your reign with Christ is coming, if there is really a day when you will have authority and fame and glory, then you can wait for it. You don't have to spend your life finding it now. You can spend your life being busy with the master's business. You can spend your life in a despised, unnoticed corner, serving, loving, praying, nobody patting you on the back, because your reign is coming. You do not have to build a kingdom on this earth. I think this really meets us uh, when we think about how we view the direction of our lives, particularly maybe the direction of our careers. Uh, it's very tempting, especially I think in our generation, to search for that all-elusive dream job, that kind of uh, that kind of glimmering prospect in the future where I'm kind of perfectly suited for this role and it makes me lots of money and gives me a kind of a, a free, flexible schedule. Uh, we find out that every single job we have is not like that. But more than that, we, we, we all have a desire to rule, to have authority. We have the desire to um, be useful. And there's a million ways in which we try to find that in this life. And this passage tells us that one day, because of Christ, if we will just be faithful, if we will just follow Jesus, we will have everything our hearts long for. We will have authority, we'll have the giftedness to reign, we'll have the ability. No more failure. No more layoffs. But if that's true, if those desires really will be met, if we want to have that, we must stop seeking that in this life. We've got to stop letting 
our dreams for our lives here on earth be the controlling factor for how we live. I'm going to speak just real plainly. Uh, this might be a little going a little bit far, right? But I, I think this stage of life, um, pre-midlife, uh, we're in a building phase of life. We're building our careers. We're building our relationships. And it's very tempting to put this dream I have for my life as the deciding factor for all the decisions I make. Job pops up, pops up in Charlotte that really advances my career. I'm gone. Don't even think about it. Don't even consider it. I'm just gone. It works for me. Um, material success is offered. I'm gone. And I'm not saying that moving to Charlotte is sinful. Surely you can process that. Sometimes it's, you were called to go. But our material success, accomplishing the roles and dreams we have, are not the center of life. They must not be if we're going to reign with Christ. Souls, people are. When you give your life away in little bits to laboring for Jesus, he rewards you with this. There's this little parable in uh, Luke 19. It's called the parable of the ten minus. And uh, it's a ruler. He gives each of his servants a minus, which is about $10,000 of modern-day currency. And he commands them to do business until he returns. And he returns. And one servant's done a really, he's like a financial genius. He made ten times. Uh, one servant's done twice over, uh, he makes, you know, he made two times, and then one servant has done nothing because he was either lazy or feared that his master was bad. And here's what the master does. For the servants, he rewards them in response to their faithfulness. For the one who made $100,000, he gives him 10 cities. So imagine the gross domestic product. I don't know what it is in Mount Pleasant. Imagine that 10 times. He hugely, lavishly rewards his servants. The only one who doesn't get a reward is the guy who just takes what he has and does nothing with it. And I think Jesus' point is this. In this life, we are entrusted with a little bit. A few relationships, a few people, our Bibles to, to live and obey. The simple things, opportunities to serve. We're entrusted with these things. They're not, they don't seem huge. We're not going to be on, on video screens. or poli- you know, We're not going to be the famous people. We're entrusted with a little bit. But if we are faithful with that little bit, he rewards us with reigning over the earth with him in degrees of our faithfulness. And so if all, if all Jesus has entrusted to you right now, it's 10 bucks, a couple people, a few opportunities, not a lot of gifts, just be faithful with the 10 bucks, and you'll reign over 10 cities. So we began our uh, lesson today with kind of a radical statement of Jesus. The last will be first. First will be last. We will end with one more, maybe the craziest one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A meek person is someone who's not insist on their rights. There's someone who maybe lets the other person get the great role or the best seat or the wonderful job. A meek person is someone who's not weak, but who chooses not to exercise their strength for themselves. And Jesus, this passage today tells us that that paradox is not just a proverb for us to think about. It's true. Jesus will actually give the earth to meek people. He will actually entrust this world, I think remade in glory to his people 
who lay down their lives in meekness. So let's embrace those lives. Let's pray. Lord, uh, uh, thank you that in, in, in Jesus, as we walk with you, indeed, Lord, uh, every desire is met in the coming kingdom. There is not one thing I long for, even in my twisted desires. Ultimately, it's not met when you return. And so I just pray that you would give us patience and just a certainty that our joy and our hope is coming. And uh, I pray you give us renewed motivation to be faithful of what you've given, uh, to love you, to seek, to seek to just be about your business in this life. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.